You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Metamorphosis. My name is Faison. I'm Tina. And here on Metamorphosis Podcast, we are interviewing various physicians across BC with the aim of learning more about their specialties and helping us to navigate our medical careers. So we're here today with Dr. Farhana Sharif. She's a general surgeon, and she also doubles as our portfolio preceptor. Could you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Sharif, and your background, how you got to where you are today? I know it's been a long, arduous journey, so... Like my medical background or my life background? <laughs> Starting with your undergrad. <laughs> a little bit of both, actually. I'd be interested to hear more about that as well. Well, so I grew up here in Vancouver, Port Moody, actually, and uh, moved to Montreal to do my undergrad degree in physiology and psychology. Um, I always think I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I used to take dissected fish into school for show and tell and mark all their organs and dissect chicken hearts from the grocery store. You're one of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I did a science undergrad, um, and then I did a year of research um, studying pancreas development in frogs um, at the Research Institute of Montreal. I stayed in Montreal for medical school, um, and then I actually came back to Vancouver uh, to start a pediatrics residency. Um, halfway through my first year, I think I tapped into probably was what was an underlying calling maybe to be a general surgeon and so after a year of pediatrics I transferred programs. Um, I finished general surgery in 2017 um, and I am currently in the second year of my uh, clinical education fellowship um, as well as an acute care surgery fellowship and a master's in health professions education. So you're pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, It's a lot of moving parts to keep track of, so I've had to buy a paper planner. <laughs> Could you tell us more about that that switch from pediatrics to surgery? What was like the transition like for you? I mean, I think making the decision to switch was tough because the worlds of pediatrics and surgery are so different. Um, I always thought I was going to be a pediatrician. I'd worked with kids growing up and... Um, I like acute medicine. It wasn't really till I became a late medical student, fourth year uh, and first year resident, that I realized that there were maybe really gr- grasped that there were specialties that had acute medicine as well as a huge procedural component. Um, and I probably underestimated as a medical student how important that component was to me in my practice. Once I finally decided to make the switch, I think probably the hardest thing about the transition was just switching from a medical mindset to a surgical mindset, and probably more importantly at the junior resident level, switching from treating children to treating adults. So I remember saying in my first week, uh, can you use Ventolin to treat many adult conditions? Because <laughs> that's <laughs> my major intervention on the pediatrics ward, you know, in RSV season. Um, so I had a lot of anxiety around just practicing adult medicine. It had been almost two years since I'd really um, participated in the care of acutely unwell adults. Um, but the program was really supportive. The residents I worked with, um, you know, were happy to remind me of the things I you know, needed to brush up on. And uh, um, overall, the transition wasn't too terrible. You said that you kind of had a, a calling uh, for surgery. Could you tell <laughs> us more about what, what that was and what that looked like? 
so I think I've always realized I was a procedural person. I've always liked working with my hands in medical school. You know, I liked anatomy, and I was an anatomy TA and did a surgical dissection program over the summertime as my summer job. Um, but I was really, um, I would say fairly closed off to the idea of being a surgeon. I think there was a lot of talk about how hard the residency was. You sort of had to give up your life uh, to do it. You were never going to sleep again. Everybody was so mean. You know, these were the Do you find that to be true? Not at all. I mean, you know, I don't sleep very much. But uh, no, I don't think the surgical culture is negative at all. I think uh, it's a really collaborative work environment. It's intense and people expect you to sort of be on your game. Uh, but no, people, people aren't generally mean. And I think... As I was going through medicine, I thought maybe I would be able to get my procedural fix from other things. Um, You know, there are a lot of procedures in emergency medicine or ICU, and I thought maybe if I did a medical specialty that had a larger procedural component, that that would be enough for me. It really wasn't until I was a resident that I realized that surgery just makes sense to me, I think. The general surgery pathologies are really, um, they're interesting to me, but they're also intuitive. The way that we work them up makes sense to me. Uh, The way we make our decisions, the algorithm we go through when it comes to making a differential diagnosis, deciding on whether you're going to take a patient to the operating room or not, it just seemed to click for me a little bit better than, you know, the diagnostic criteria and treatment approaches for lupus, for example. You know, I could appreciate why those other medical things were interesting, but they didn't feel quite so intuitive or easy for me as surgery did early on in my training. And so you kind of figured that out after, you know, half your year in R1 pediatrics. Yeah, I mean, I think the stars kind of aligned to some degree. So um, when I started my pediatrics residency, two other pediatrics residents had transferred to general surgery in the past seven years. So I ended up being the third in eight years to transfer from pediatrics into general surgery. I think part of that is that there seem to be a lot of people interested in pediatrics and general surgery. I'm not really even sure what the crossover is, but it's not an uncommon decision people seem to find themselves trying to make. And I mean, I think the second factor is the pediatric surgical group at BC Children's is fabulous to work with. It's a great learning environment. And so if you're someone who maybe naturally is drawn to surgery, it'll foster and bring out that passion or allow it to thrive, I suppose. And so if you could go back in time, would you have taken the same journey or would you have done gen surge from the beginning? Um, I don't think I would have done anything differently, um, which I suppose is easy to say now, you know. Um, eight or nine years out. out. It was stressful at the time. Um, I think for someone who is sort of sitting on the fence, in retrospect, having had the chance to train as a pediatrics resident, having had the opportunity to realize that that was probably not where I belonged, and then making the switch into a really labor-intensive program, knowing that the alternative I was considering wasn't a good fit for me, made it easier to handle the work hours and to maybe keep my morale up. I never questioned whether I had made the right decision because I had already experienced the alternative and knew that that wasn't wasn't a good fit for me. 
I, maybe I'll just give our listeners a little bit of background into who you are, because I think you can say that being who you are. But so when we met Dr. Sharif, <laughs> I think she had a venti coffee. It was like your third one of the day. <laughs> you had woken up in the middle of the night thinking about a patient. I think you took out their gallbladder and you're like, did I cut whatever artery? I don't remember. And you like got up in the middle of the night and went to the hospital to go check on them. You came in and you were holding your coffee and like a stack of papers and you were reading through papers. And then you had come to see us and then like an hour and a half later you had something else scheduled. So you're definitely not somebody who, um, how do I say this? Like you're very on it. Um, that I think some medical students were not all like that. For those of us who don't have that tenacity and, and open-mindedness to continuing education, how do you make the right decision for you earlier on hmm. based off of what you learn in third year and in fourth year? I mean, certainly, I suppose nothing I'm going to say here is gospel. This is, you know, my own personal thoughts. I think a lot of people come into medicine with an idea of what they think they're going to be, right? I think most people who enter medicine have had a family member who was a physician who maybe served as a mentor or a role model, had family friends or, you know, contact with a physician that had some sort of impact on their lives, read a series of books. Um, you know, growing up, I used to read these books by Lurleen McDaniel. The only person I know of who's ever heard of these books is one of my best friends in Ottawa, who was a pediatric oncologist. And Lurleen McDaniel used to write these sort of teeny bopper books about kids with cancer. And I had decided, you know, I'm going to be a pediatric oncologist. Here I go. Um, you know, I think everyone has an influence of some kind. And so they kind of have an idea when they come into medical school about where they see themselves. I think getting exposure to what it means to be that kind of physician early on is probably the only way that you can really figure out whether that life in that world is going to be a good match for you at all. Um, I think that it's important probably to remember that residency training and the resident experience is not the same as the physician or the attending experience. Um, obviously, you need to go through residency to get to that end point where you're an independent practitioner. You need to enjoy that residency. It needs to be the kind of place where you can learn and thrive. Um, but you don't need to be willing to sign up for a lifetime of residency lifestyle and workload and things like that. I think it's important to keep both of those things in mind, but also to look at sort of the end product and really get an idea from physicians who are really in it, out of training, in independent practice, to get an idea from them about what their lives are like, what the highs and the lows are, what the bread and butter is. Because at the end of the day, you know, the exciting stuff is exciting everywhere, but the bread and butter is something you really need to be able to do uh, day to day and still find interesting. I think one of the best pieces of advice I got from one of my pediatric surgery mentors when I was trying to decide whether I would switch from pediatrics to general surgery was, uh, she said, Brianna, no matter what it is you do, no matter what specialty you end up with, there will always be a four o'clock in the morning phone call. 
you know, what comes after that phone call obviously is going to depend on what kind of career you end up pursuing. But there will always be something that you get woken up at four o'clock in the morning for. And you need to think about what is still going to excite you 10 years from now, 15 years from now at four o'clock in the morning. Is that a feeling you just get? Like, how do you know? I suppose it's a combination of things. I mean, for me, it's a feeling I just get. I think I have certainly been called (laughs) at many four o'clock in the mornings. And while it's exhausting and you think, oh my God, really, I'm getting out of bed again. At the end of the day, when I'm standing at the patient's bedside, when I'm making a treatment plan, when I'm in the operating room, taking out the 10th or 20th appendix of the week at four o'clock in the morning, it's still interesting. It's still enjoyable most of the time. And I suppose most importantly, to me, it's still important. It feels like something that's worthwhile. And I can't say I have ever resented my job in the moment at four o'clock in the morning if I'm looking after a patient. That's just not a thought that ever really has crossed my mind. I remember one of our previous conversations. um, This was back early in fourth year when we had first met you. And some of the big questions around all on all of our minds was, you know, oh my God, residency, (laughs) especially surgical residency. We're never going to sleep. We'll never see our families. Um, And it just, the thought of it terrified me five to seven in even more years um, of what I thought was torture. And I remember you telling me then, like, it doesn't matter um, when you make that million dollars in your lifetime. (laughs) That's optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because you had taken a huge pay cut doing your fellowship, right? (laughs) And you said, I'm never going to regret like with the pediatric switch to uh, gen surge, I'm never going to regret the years and the training that I put in to be a better doctor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that really took a lot of the fear out of it for me. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little more? Um, I really believe that. I think, you know, in medicine, we're very goal-oriented and time-directed. You know, I'm going to finish medical school and then I'm going to go to a residency. I'm going to finish my residency. And from there, I'm going to go on to fellowship and then I'm going to get a job or whatever it is that your sort of personal direct path that you've laid out is. Um, But the closer I got to finishing my surgical residency, the more I realized that everything is is gonna be harder than you think it is. Very rarely do patients completely follow the rules, so to speak. You know, medicine is so gray. There are so many nuances and unexpected that show up that it became clear to me that every additional day I spent training was an additional day I acquired a new skill or a new insight or a new piece of information that was going to make me a better doctor for my patients down the line. And I think about all the little sort of curves, I suppose, that I've taken along this long path towards more training. And it's all been useful, you know, the things I learned as a pediatrics resident, I've used dozens of times um, in general surgery, despite the fact that, you know, the size of the patient is vastly different. Um, those principles have stuck with me and I think have probably made me a better surgeon. So going off of what makes a better surgeon, do you think that there are specific traits that a good surgeon should have? Um, so I will start off by saying I think there is a huge diversity in the world of surgery, as I'm sure you guys are already seeing. 
Um, and it will definitely become clear to you when you're in clerkship and beyond. I think, you know, we're all very different personalities. Um, some of the commonalities we share, I think, um, first and foremost, is a love for the work. Um, I think it's no secret that surgical training is demanding and a surgical practice is demanding. You know, when you get that four o'clock in the morning phone call, there are going to be nights where you get out of bed and you have to be in the hospital to embark on an operation of however many hours. Um, and I would say everybody I know who is a surgeon or in surgical training really loves the field. We love the pathologies. We love operating. Uh, we love the decision making. I think everybody really has a passion for the specialty. Um, I suppose in general, surgeons are fairly direct communicators, Tina. <laughs> maybe mentioned that before. <laughs> um, you know, and I think part of that is a requirement of the job. I, maybe it would be more accurate to say that most of us are fairly efficient um, and fairly task and goal oriented. You know, as I, as I think about my own colleagues... Well, I, I don't know if this is unique to surgeons, but I will say that most of the people I know who are in surgical fields possess the ability to <laughs> multitask on less energy. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to say that. I think, you know, we all love our specialty and to us it's worth it to work the hours and invest the time. But at the same time, None of us have really been willing to give up the rest of our lives, and so we all have friends and family and social lives. Um, and I think to balance a heavy workload and research with a life can be challenging, but I would say that um, it's something that most people who choose to go into surgery have found a way to do fairly well. So you would say that's a myth and that surgeons have no lives outside of the <laughs> hospital? <laughs> I would definitely say that's a myth, I think, you know. Most of our program is in relationships or have children. You know, we all find time to go on vacations across the world. You know, we all do research and have periods of time where we buckle down. But, um, yeah, we live lives like everybody else. I always say to people that we just start a little bit earlier and end a little bit later in the day than <laughs> than the rest of the world. But, uh but it doesn't mean we can't do the things other people do. Yeah. Are there any other myths in surgery that you are aware of and could clarify for us? Well, I suppose we've already addressed the whole surgeons are mean thing. Um, <laughs> in general, I think surgeons are, they're a really fun bunch. Um, they probably have some high expectations in general. They expect everybody's gonna sort of work at the pace that they work. But uh, but uh, I often get told by my medical students, gosh, general surgery was great. It was not nearly as bad as I expected it to be, which I always find so interesting because clearly somebody's perpetuating this rumor out there. But for years, people have been telling us that it was a good experience for them. So hopefully we're making a move to change that. Didn't you tell us that you were not in love with your general surgery rotation in third year? Yeah, so uh, my clerkship rotation in general surgery was maybe was not enough to get me to change tracks or mindsets. Like I was already 
along this line of I'm going to be a pediatrician, I'm going to be a pediatric subspecialist. Um, and when I did my general surgery rotation, we had a lot of complex problems like enterocutaneous fistulas or complex abdominal wall abscesses that took, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten hours to fix. And um, even then, I could appreciate what was interesting about it, what was exciting about it. I fired my first bowel stapler as a medical student. It was the greatest day of my life. Um, but I just sort of said to myself, you know, eh, I like it, but I don't think it's the life for me. You know, there wasn't anything that really um, got me going. When I came to pediatrics, to my pediatric surgery rotation, there wasn't a day where I didn't want to stay in the hospital until all of the work was done. I just never wanted to leave. Um, some might say that's because I have no life, but I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I think I just really loved what was happening. Um, and before I transferred to the residency program in general surgery, I did a month-long elective at an adult hospital in general surgery. And even then, I you know, would get itchy fingers in the OR. I would watch the residents tie the mesentery and think, well, I could do that, you know, or I want to do that. Somebody give me, somebody give me the needle, you know. Um, and, uh, and going back to my pediatrics training, there really wasn't anything there that I felt so excited about. There wasn't there weren't things that made me want to stay in the hospital all the time. I didn't you know, when I left the general surgery rotation, I had FOMO, you know. But you didn't have that in third year? You didn't know yet in third year? No, I had never even considered it. You know, I was on the pediatrics track. I thought, um, I'm going to be a pediatric oncologist or a pediatric intensivist or a pediatric emerge doc. You know, they all do acute medicine. They all do procedures. Um, they all see complex pathologies. Um, and I was fairly set in my ways, and there wasn't really anything during my clerkship rotation, I think, that sort of sparked that that passion enough, maybe, is the way to say that. So you mentioned that um, as a surgeon, you wake up a little earlier, you sleep a little bit later. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know what a regular day kind of looks like for you as a surgeon. Can you walk us through what a typical day is? Um, so my life is not that of a typical surgeon because I'm a fellow currently. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm on service at VGH, um, my hours are basically the same as the resident hours. Um, so, you know, we generally round about 5.30 to 6 a.m. Um, all of the teams hand over at 7, which is really great for learning. I think we uh, hear from the residents who were on call the night before. They go over the consults they did, the cases they did, uh, cases that are pending. We talk about complex decision-making and how people might approach, you know, certain cases that are that are waiting to be done. Um, surgeons will bring complex cases from their own teams for discussion to get other opinions, which is uh, really useful, especially as a senior learner. Uh, from then, we are on call every two to three days. So... On our intake days, we have an operating room slate that starts at 7.45 and ends at about 4. We receive consults from both the wards and the emergency department for 24 hours. And of course, during the day, we're responsible for 
our own patients, you know, making sure that their pre- and post-operative care is taken care of and um, sending people home once they're ready for discharge. Um, Overnight, we generally have one senior resident, one junior resident, or a fellow and a junior resident, as well as an attending surgeon. And uh, similarly, we take all of the consults from the wards and the eMERGE overnight, and uh, we manage the ward patients for all of the inpatient general surgery uh, services other than uh, the hepatobiliary team. I think the day of a, the week of a general surgeon probably depends on where you're working. Uh, but in general, um, at most hospitals, a general surgeon will have a day of operating time a week uh, for their elective cases. Sometimes emergency cases come in that need to sort of trump those or go first. Um, generally, people have one or two days of office time where they see their new consults, follow-ups, um, patients that they've operated on or planning to operate on. Um, a lot of general surgeons will do endoscopy, so upper GI and lower GI scopes. Um, and then all surgeons do one to two, sometimes three, uh, days and nights of on-call work uh, every week, depending on the, the model and the structure you're working in. So when I was shadowing general surgery, what I noticed was that you guys have a lot of variety in your practice. Mm -hmm. It was the rounding, and then it was in and out of the OR, but it was also patient follow-up and doing consults. Do you have a favorite component of your job? Uh, I mean, as a surgeon, obviously, I like operating. <laughs> but I think probably the whole experience of patient care, I think there is this in some circles, a misconception that surgeons sort of show up, don't talk to the patients, operate, and then hand the care to someone else. Um, but I think, you know, one of the real joys of the job is seeing a patient with a pathology, you know, being able to explain the problem to that patient, to discuss the treatment options, to then do an operation, you know, in many cases fix the underlying problem, and then to help them recover from that and see them go home. Um, I think start to finish, that process is really, really rewarding. So going off of that, is there anything you could do less of in your work? Anything that you don't like? Paperwork. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> How much paperwork is there? Um, I, I, you know, in the, in the hospital setting, it's not terrible, but um, I think once you're running your own practice... From what I hear, you know, there are a lot of tests coming in and paperwork to follow up on and, um, you know, letters to send. And it's important for looking after the patient as a whole, but I can imagine it can feel overwhelming at times. Is there anything that surprised you about your work when you went into it? To be honest, I was kind of surprised at how much I still loved it at four o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And that sounds sort of silly because I obviously chose to switch into this specialty. Um, but I never expected to find things so interesting or fulfilling in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know, I never thought I would work for 36 hours in a row and then say, yeah, that was an awesome day. 
but that happens all the time. Could you tell us something that you're most proud of in your work? I mean, I think a lot of us suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome, so I'm not sure I have some big crowning achievement where I say, you know, oh, look at this you do. <laughs> amazing thing that I've done. Um, but there are moments, I think, sort of little proud moments that get scattered along. That's probably what keeps the job um, so fulfilling. You know, there are cases where a patient comes in and you just have the feeling that something is wrong. You know, I've had moments where I think something just doesn't look right. And maybe the labs aren't perfectly reflective and maybe the CT isn't, you know, obviously catastrophic. Um, but there will be moments where I, you trust your gut and you will bring a patient to the operating room where you'll order an intervention. Um, and the confirmation that that was the right thing to do, you know, the minute I put a laparoscope in and say, oh, there really was a, a bad bowel obstruction there, even though it didn't show up on the CT, my mm -hmm. intuition was right. Those moments, um, really, I mean, I walk out of the hospital with a little, you know, pat myself on the back. <laughs> I think, you know, maybe I do sometimes know what I'm doing over here. And then I think there's the feedback from the patients. I think, you know, hearing from a patient that they feel like they've been well looked after, hearing from a patient that they want to keep in touch with you or they're upset that you're changing rotations, um, you know, having someone ask to have you there during an end-of-life discussion with their family when you're not even on that rotation anymore, you know, those little things. Um, I mean, those are the really special moments, I think, about about doing what we do. So you've talked about working in the hospital and then having your own practice as a general surge. And I know you um, have been to Peru to do work abroad. Can you kind of tell us what general surgery looks like in terms of career paths and what you're able to do within this field? Oh, I think there are so many options. I think one of the nicest things about general surgery is um, it's such a broad specialty. There's such a huge diversity of pathology and and disease processes and organ systems. And with that, I think, comes a lot of flexibility in terms of what kind of practice you have. Um, my interest is surgical oncology. And so, you know, my hope is to have a, an academic practice focusing on complex cancer management. Um, but certainly, you know, the life of a community general surgeon is different um, in terms of the types of pathology they may see or the complexity of cases they may need to deal with on their own. Um, there are people who will specialize in specific areas like colorectal surgery or breast surgery, um, but there are also a lot of widely transferable skills. Um, certainly, I think general surgery opens up doors for things like international work. Um, we're pretty versatile, I think. Um, and then, of course, there is a whole educational aspect, I think, as a surgeon, um, there's lots of opportunity to be a teacher and to work on curriculum development and education. Um, there are some other subspecialties that maybe classically are not thought of as surgical specialties like intensive care uh, fellowships that are also options for surgeons. So certainly you can be a surgeon intensivist and practice uh, ICU medicine as well as have a surgical practice. Um, so lots of options. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit. You talked a little bit about the uh 
the desire to work in an academic center. Mm. Would you mind explaining more about uh, some of the research you've done in the past or some of the research you're doing currently? Sure. So um, my initial research experience was um, developmental biology, like um, like gene modification uh, research, studying or screwing up, I suppose, pancreas development in frogs to understand where some congenital uh, pancreatic disorders might come from. Um, in residency, um, I did a little bit of epidemiologic research in the area of pediatric surgery, which is where my initial interests uh, lay. Um, and over time, I've been really lucky to be able to um, spend some time doing educational research, which I think is where I see my future path uh, as a clinician educator. Um, so I'm currently working on a few projects. We're working on a um, project in the context of interprofessional simulation programs, um, looking at the types of learning that come out of simulation and um, how people are actually learning from those experiences. Uh, we're also looking at some transition to practice uh, work within our own community, uh, getting a sense of where maybe some of the deficits in general surgery training uh, exist and how we might be able to improve those uh, in targeting people's readiness for practice. Um, and then lastly, we're working on a uh, curricular intervention for our acute care surgery service to see if we can really get the most out of uh, the educational time on that clinical rotation. So we've got a few things going yeah, on. Yeah, quite a are, bit. Which are exciting. <laughs> <laughs> how did you uh, get involved with UBC faculty? Um, so I think we're really lucky at UBC to have the Center for Health Education Scholarship, or CHESS, as we like to call it. It's just an incredible hub of educational researchers and physicians and just brilliant minds who understand so much about how to do research in the medical world that is not clinical. I uh, was really fortunate to be given the opportunity to do the CHESS Fellowship, uh, which is a two-year fellowship, and that really has just opened up so many doors for teaching at the undergraduate level, becoming a portfolio coach, and even sort of some bigger um, opportunities like working on competence by design at the PGME and at, and at the Royal College. It's just been, uh, it's an incredible resource, I think, for the people here in BC. From our position, standing in our shoes, entering clerkship, mm -hmm. what can we realistically expect to find out? If I'm understanding your question correctly, my advice would be see as much as you can, you know, shadow people in areas where you think you might have an interest. When you're on your clerkship rotations, be present, really try to get a sense of what life is like for the residents and for the attendings and what the meat of that specialty really entails. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that nothing is set in stone. You know, I think I'm probably living proof that there is wiggle room and there's always room for people who are passionate the world of medicine is very like i mentioned goal driven and goal focused but people understand that you know sometimes you don't have all the information to make the right decision for yourself and i think as long as you embrace all of those uh, opportunities and and you know prove yourself to be passionate and invested and hardworking there is room for change and for modification and for growth. It's sort of a lifelong process.
So we talked a little bit about the allocation of resources in healthcare and how that can be uh, an area for improvement, as you said. What do you think is the biggest health problem British Columbia is facing today, and how do we begin to address that? That's quite a broad question, but... (laughs) I mean, I think overall as Canadians, uh, we're lucky to have access to universal health care. We're lucky to have the option of receiving health care in the most dire of situations when we need it. Um, There's always room for improvement, and, you know, I think people are talking a lot about that, but... um, I think we're at a reasonable starting place. Where do you see your career heading in the future? Is there any changes that are coming to the field of surgery? Mm. So I'm starting a fellowship in surgical oncology next year. And I think even over the last few years, we're seeing more and more targeted therapies for cancers. And I think that's probably where we're going to start to see the biggest evolution in surgical care. You know, I think as we learn more and more about how cancers behave, there are more options for targeted therapeutics. I do sometimes wonder whether, um, as a surgeon, that means that we will only see sort of the most complex or refractory of cases and whether that's going to change our practice patterns or even the nature of cases we see every day. Um, I don't have an answer to that yet, but I think already, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing really remarkable uh, responses, you know, for things like melanoma to the new targeted therapies that uh, that never really existed before. I think that's only going to continue to evolve. What are some of the challenges currently in the field of surgery that you think are prominent? So I think for surgeons in practice, wait times continue to be an issue. I think people would love to be able to provide um, more timely care to their patients. We do pretty well with um, cancer treatment guidelines, but I think sometimes the non-malignancy uh, pathologies um, get shuffled around a little bit just because of, of challenges with access to lots of, of operating resources. Um, I do think that as each aspect of the specialty of general surgery evolves as care for specific disease processes becomes more complex. Um, It does feel like it's a little bit more challenging to keep up with how quickly treatments are being developed or treatment guidelines are evolving. I think it just sort of highlights the need for really good continuing medical education programs, for good, you know, update conferences. you know, for multidisciplinary boards and and regional tumor conferences to make sure that everybody is sort of well-informed and standards are are upheld. What does life look like outside of medicine for you? Um, I really spend lots of time with my friends and family and out in the city. I am the unofficial aunt to a lot of tiny little nieces and nephews now. Um, And so I try to snuggle my friend's children regularly. I like to get out on my bike. My friend and I have a bike group with two rules. The first is you can't judge someone if they have to walk their bike up a hill. And the second is you must be willing to bike to an ice cream shop. (laughs) So in the summer, we try to get out in our bike group regularly. (laughs) Yeah, I just just hang out with my friends, family, hike around the city. I just, uh, just a regular person, I think. Are you ready to head back to the cold of Toronto? (laughs) I've got a list of uh, warm clothing and a new parka that I need to buy before I get there. (laughs) 
So thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Sharif. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. We really appreciate you taking out the time to talk to us, and uh, we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you. Congratulations on your surgical oncology fellowship. <laughs> Good luck. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Thank you.